Welcome to the Extra Environmentalist. Your opposable thumb means nothing. This is what we want to be. We don't want to be Americans or Germans or English. We want to be extra environmentalists. Always feel wherever you go that you are a stranger. The outsider, the one looking in. This is the viewpoint that makes all places the same to you. Welcome to the Extra Environmentalist. I'm your host, Seth Moserkatz, along with my illustrious co-host, Justin Ritchie. Justin, happy 2012. How are things with you? Everything's great. We're moving into a very important and momentous year in the human experience for so many reasons. And that's why today we have a very special episode to kick off the Extra Environmentalist here in 2012. This is like nothing we've ever put together before. And I'm really excited to speak with so many incredibly intelligent people about what is happening in our world in this big that, year. That's right, Justin. And we, we combine forces with four different guests, four different experts on different aspects of things that we wanted to cover for 2012 because, you know, 2011 was such a big year for us. We thought we'd kick off 2012 with an explosive episode. Explode in all, in all sorts of way. I mean, when 2011 started out, I remember there were all these stories of like birds dying and animals dying in strange places. And everyone was like, oh, it's going to be a really rough year. And I think that if you went back to the start of 2011 and you were able to magically lay out the exact description of everything that happened during the year, I think that people would have called you a doomer like at the start of the year if you had predicted most of the things that happened. You know, Euro debt crisis, America on the verge of default due to stupid political games, riots around the world, Syria's violent repression the horrible, tragic tsunami in Japan and power outages in Pakistan and India and, well, just so many things. And it makes you wonder what 2012 is going to be like now that there is this wave of energy to reform the system. You have to look at what happened at the start of 2011 in Egypt and everyone has been fighting like crazy to get the kind of system that serves the people. And it, Egypt has really deteriorated. The situation there is so rough and the people are essentially fighting against the military now. And we've got to be able to take a step back and before all of the emotion gets swept up in what's likely to become a global spring in just a few months and say we need to have a very clear vision of where we're headed next. And so that's why we're putting together all of these different conversations with really, really well-informed people in particular areas. That's right, Justin. And on this show, we're talking with four guests, which diverts from our usual one guest, two hours kind of platform. So Justin, do you want to run through who we're going to be talking to today? First up, we're talking with Dr. Patricia McEnany. 
at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, who's an expert on Mayan culture. And we spoke with her earlier this year for Extra Environmentalist episode number 12 about misconceptions that are typically put forward when talking about collapse, specifically the collapse of the Mayan civilization. And because so much of the mystique surrounding 2012 has to do with, you know, supposed Mayan prophecy in the Mayan calendar, we wanted to talk to someone just briefly about what's the real deal here. Did the Mayans really have prophecies about the year 2012, about the end of, of this Baktun, and what happened when the last Mayan long count cycle ended? So we're speaking to her about that. Then next we speak with Dennis McKenna, who is currently working on a book about life with his brother, Terence McKenna, who was one of the key originators of the 2012 meme as we know it now. Terence has numerous talks and workshops that have been recorded that talk about the eschaton, which is this point that's pulling us towards this one particular unforeseeable and unknowable point in human history. And Dennis had a lot of dialogue with Terrence about the idea of the eschaton and about the idea of 2012 and about the novelty that was involved in the time wave theory that Terrence had generated. So we wanted to speak with Dennis about his thoughts headed into this particular year. And then to get the picture of everything that's happening right now, we speak with Mike Rupert, who is the star of the documentary Collapse. He's also behind the website CollapseNet, which is constantly distilling headlines and news from around the globe about how things are proceeding on global debt crisis and security issues and conflicts around the world. And we wanted to talk to him about what he really sees happening in these next few months and how we can prepare ourselves psychologically for what's coming next. Lastly, we speak with Charles Eisenstein to think about how we can move forward into 2012 with all the crazy memes moving around us. What does it mean for humanity to move forward into a collapse and past a collapse and to see the potential that humanity has and the growth that needs to happen? The extreme amount of debt that has built up around the world, and the United States in particular, has become a burden on everybody. And to move past that debt and to think of new solutions about how to make that debt go away and to change it into something else has been has been a task that Charles has been thinking about for a long time. And he comes up with all kinds of interesting solutions about how to deal with it and to make it something that is not a huge weight that's pulling humanity and civilization down anymore. Well, with all that, we're going to jump right into our conversation with Dr. McEnany about Mayans in 2012. Try 
first question we had was, um, when you are working on the ground in Guatemala, what have the Mayan people told you about their expectations for 2012 or maybe their response to the expectations that perhaps tourists or people that visit from North America or Europe uh, bring with them? Well, I had a conversation with a Maya leader just a few months ago in uh, in southern Belize, actually, a Kipchi man, and he felt that 2012 was indeed going to be an auspicious year and that my people were using it to take stock of what had happened in the last um, Bakhtun, the last 400 years, which have been largely a history of colonialism and repression and, and now lingering uh, racial discrimination, and that Maya people in general, if they were thinking about 2012, were thinking that this great shift in the Maya calendar, it really is a very auspicious time in the Maya long count calendar, but the Maya did not perceive of it at any point in time as an ending. It would have been seen as a time in which uh, one cycle was completed and the seeding of a new cycle. And my people today, those I've spoken with, feel that it might indeed be the dawning of a new time in which Maya people are able to organize and get a fair shake and sort of reclaim a stake in the future of the countries in which they live. I've heard this in Guatemala, I've heard this in Belize, and that they also will be able to move forward in a way that um, has not really been possible uh, during the past 400 years. And so what does it mean to the Maya people that the 13th Bakhtun is, is ending? Well, could you tell us a little bit about what the Bakhtuns are and what perhaps it meant when the previous ones completed? Yes, the the Bach tune is a period of 400 tunes, which is roughly 400 years. And so the last Bach tune, this is the end of the 13th Bach tune. So the 13th Bach tune has been really not a very good Bach tune for Maya people because that's been from, say, the year 2000 minus 400, that's 1600. So it's been the whole period of colonialism when Maya people have seen a loss of political autonomy. They've seen in enslavement. They've seen dramatic population decimation due to poverty and forced labor and introduced diseases. And they've seen dislocation, loss of land. So it really has been a really horrendous period of time for most Maya people. And so the seeding of a new Bakhtun would be the 14th Bakhtun is something that people might look forward to. So that's one thing. And then the, the other thing is that the Counting of Bakhtuns is something that was a characteristic of royal Maya dynasties. And so we have the careful chronicling of Bakhtuns primarily during the uh, eighth Bakhtun, and we have seventh Bakhtun dates also, but without getting into a lot of calendrical detail, it is a calendar that is not been in extensive use since what would be the equivalent of AD 909 is the last recorded long count date that we have, which is a 10th cycle date. So, And that's recorded in stone. So then the calendar continued on with this cartoon count, which is a 20-year period. So it became a different kind of calendar then. So the calendar is it's very dynamic and has not always been, like time is not always 
always been chronicled in exactly the same way throughout the you know millennia of, of Maya tracking time. So the calendar that's been in more consistent use is the sacred calendar or the calendar round, which is a 256-year cycle. So that one is really the calendar that if, if my people still keep some of the old calendars, that might be the calendar that would be kept. That's likely to be the one. So what happened when the last Mayan long count calendar cycle ended? Oddly enough, the end of classic Maya period it does fall right about the ending of the ninth cycle dates and the, and then the beginning of the tenth cycle dates. So, uh, which is the tenth Baktun. So there is a a coincidence there that is rather interesting, and there is a history of a kind of a consideration of of calendrical time as something that is a very potent thing and does hold you know information about you know both the past and the future. So there's I, I think that is sort of taking time seriously and thinking about it as something that is a, a more active agent than the way that we think about time, I think, you know, that's an operative concept, certainly for more traditional Maya people, and and definitely as we go back in time, and there's a very famous story of the last Maya kingdom to fall in 1697 that seemed to be, um, the events as they unfolded seemed to be linked with things that were going on with the calendar, so... The calendar is, is a kind of a potent thing in, in um, traditional Maya thinking. And the Maya people today are aware of their history in connection with the calendar? Yes, I, uh, well, more, more or less, um, some, some more, some less. They're in Guatemala, particularly in the highlands, and there's quite a cadre of, of Maya intellectuals who know about the past calendars that were used. In the rural areas where children don't have access to much education and they really don't have an opportunity to learn about their own past when they go to school, they might just learn about the history of the nation state in which they're currently living. So those those children have less opportunity to learn about the ancient calendar. And I'm involved with a program now that tries to make some of that material available to kids in fourth, fifth, and sixth grade. And we're doing that in, in Guatemala, in the Peitan, in the lowlands, and in southern Belize, and in the Yucatan also, because for some children, it's just very hard for them to uh, learn about this because the information's not available to them. It's probably not part of the general curriculum, is no. it? No. Yeah. No, it's not mm. in any of the countries and the nation states in which there is a, a large Maya population, and, and that includes Mexico, Belize, Guatemala, Hond- and Honduras. So are there prophecies that the Mayans had that intersect with 2012? No, nothing. <laughs> there is nothing. It's There's, just the calendar? There, it, it, it's, there really is nothing in all of the kind of new age literature that are this business of a galactic alignment and a, what is it, harmonic convergence and return of Quetzalcoatl, invasion by aliens. All of these things have been written by non-Maya people who don't really have a solid background in 
Maya archaeology or Maya epigraphy or, or even the Maya calendar. And, and some of this stuff really conflates the modes of thought in the Mexican highlands with the Maya region. For instance, in the Aztec creation narratives, there's a big emphasis on the sort of world destruction and successive rebirth um, that's really a very important part of the, the Aztec, the kind of Nahua creation narratives. But it's not such a big part of the Maya creation narratives. There is in the Popol Vuh the story of how humans came to be and that the gods tried several times, you know, and made humans out of mud, and then that didn't work too well. And then they tried wood, and that didn't work too well. And then they, then they made humans out of corn, and that worked really well. But the humans were too smart, and they saw everything. And so then the gods kind of, uh, you know, brought them back a few notches so they weren't quite so omniscient. So there's that creation narrative that we have through the Popol Vuh, but there's not this emphasis on destruction of the world in any of the sources of Maya prose that we have. And also the, the deity Quetzalcoatl, that's a, that's an Aztec, that's a Nahuatl word for feathered serpent, and that is a deity from the highlands. Now, Quetzalcoatl does seem to have made some inroads into the lowlands at the end of the classic period, but but he probably was called something like Kukulkan, which would be Feathered Serpent in Yucatec Mayan. And he was never, Quetzalcoatl was never a major deity in the Maya lowland region. So even that is a little, <laughs> a right. little far-fetched. So when you were teaching your classes at University of North Carolina Chapel Hill, do you have students that come to class and ask about 2012? Does that come up every class or do students oh, avoid it? Oh, yes, of course. And there is, we have one monument. It's from a site called Tortuguero, which is not too far from Pelenque, a very famous site in Chiapas. And it is the one single classic period monument that we have that has a date of 2012 on it that refers to the end of the 13th Bakhtun. And it refers to it, it's a, a lot of times in Maya hieroglyphic text, particularly monuments on stone sculpture, uh, that would have been a monument that a particular ruler would have erects. And generally, he or she, usually he, is mentioned on the monument and oftentimes placed in time. And so there will be distance numbers that frame um, like the dedication of a new building or something like that. And so there'll be a counting back in time to kind of position that person within the dynastic chain in which, you know, he wants everyone to see him. And then there might be a counting forward in time too to uh, sort of intimate that this person's rulership was you know, equivalent to this notion of monumental time. And it would, you know, always be. And so it is in that context that we do have this single classic period reference to 2012 from a stone monument at a site that's been largely destroyed. And so we have the monument, but we don't have, uh, we don't have its context and we don't know whether it's inside a building, outside a building, um, or anything about that. I mean, it's not as though there, there are no books of Maya prophecy. Um, there, there are a lot of books of Maya prophecy that come from Yucatan, 
and they're called the books of Chalam Balam, which um, uh, the books of the Jaguar priest, a famous sort of wise man um, who lived in the sort of early to middle colonial period. And he was literate and wrote um, in Yucatec Mayan these prophecies um, using a European alphabet. So, you know, not using the hieroglyphs, using uh, the Latin alphabet. And those books have a lot to say about what has happened. Is you know, my people were going through the whole experience of colonization at this point in time, and so there's a lot of talk about the pretender to the throne and uh, what happened in the past and what might happen in the future. But there is no explicit reference to the year 2012 in any of the books of Chalam Balam. This Mayan prophet you speak of, what did he say? And what were his prophecies about? He was speaking um, in, a, in a rather um, abstract way and not prophesizing that something was going to happen at in a certain year. He would say things more like, and then the pretender to the throne will be brought down, um, but not like giving like a specific day when that might, or year when that might happen. And also, there's a lot of, looking backwards as well as looking forward and, and talking about the, the concept. David Stewart has a new book called The Order of Days, which I really can't recommend highly enough. It's an excellent book. And he talks about the Maya concept of time as a thing that folds over onto itself. And so, and that's manifest in kingly titles. Often kings would be given the name of their grandfather who ruled, you know, almost as if they were the regeneration of their grandfather. And actually that happens today in Guatemala among some sort of people who are more traditional about about naming practices that the grandchildren are named after the grandparents are seen as a sort of regeneration of grandparents. So there's this notion of time is kind of folding over on itself and it never really actually repeats itself, but you operate in reference to, to both the past and the future, you know, and how you as a human being might situate yourself. Why do you think this date has so dramatically captured public imagination? <laughs> so that's a very good question. I think that it's been, I think, at least a century now that we've been holding up Maya civilization, especially as a kind of a mirror to look at ourselves. And we went through a period of time where even the experts in Maya archaeology and epigraphy maintained that uh, there was no warfare in Maya society, that it was a peaceful society of intellectuals and calendar priests. And we now know that, of course, that wasn't true. And then we went through a period of looking at the Mayas being very, very warlike. And, you know, the like Mel Gibson's movie Apocalypto is a good example of that. When people asked him, why did you make a movie that was so historically inaccurate? He said, um, I wasn't trying to make a movie about history. I was trying to make a movie. I was making a morality tale. And so why do you have to use the Maya to talk about what you see as some of the excesses in today's society. So we're forever um, looking to the South to um, 
to sort of uh, examine the the woes of our society and the difficulties and problems we're having. And we've been doing it for about 100 years now, and 2012 is perhaps the climax of it. You know, there is one long count calendar date that refers directly to 2012, but that's really about it. Everything else has just been fabricated by North American scholars. <laughs> so, so we're looking at the Mayans and, and perhaps just projecting these myths that are really just telling us about ourselves. Yes, when we feel like we're kind of stuck in a posture of martial aggression, um, then we, you know, we look to the South and kind of say, well, the Maya were really warlike too. And so I think we're, we're constantly trying to work out problems in our own society by looking back to what happened in the past. And then I think as, as Tony Avini, who is an arche- Maya archaeoastronomer, really feels like the disquiet in today's society is, is really part of, is, has been an engine for ramping up this notion that 2012 is going to be this year of this great apocalyptic period. But, you know, even when you do do look at the literature that's out there that's being written by, I guess we can call them New Age people, some of the literature suggests that there will be a great catastrophe and apocalypse in 2012, and then the other half of the literature is about how there's going to be a new dawning, a new awakening. And so, you know, it's, people are looking at it from, they're bringing to this great shift in the calendar whatever they want to bring to it, whatever they feel they would like to see happen or change, or, or perhaps their greatest fears of what, what might happen they bring to this. Yeah. So any final thoughts you want to leave with us about uh, 2012 and and the Maya people? Do you think that uh, if nothing major happens next year, that the Maya people can just breathe a sigh of relief that all of the crazy tourists are leaving them alone? (laughs) It is my hope that 2012 does create change and it is a year in which Maya people begin to see on the horizon greater opportunity, greater opportunity for education, greater opportunity for uh, life experience and, and li- just simple livelihood. Countries in which Maya people live today, which includes the U.S., there's a tremendous Maya population in the U.S. that if there can be uh, respect for that diversity and acceptance of people who were here a long time before Europeans and definitely deserve a fair shake, um, that if that could happen and if that could be what comes out of 2012 uh, by everyone examining this, what this great calendrical shift might mean, then, then it will be a very good thing. Wow, Dr. McEnany had some very powerful things to say there, didn't she, Justin? So why have we not heard before now that there are no Mayan prophecies about the end of this particular Bakhtun cycle, about 2012? 
I don't know. Why haven't we? Yeah, and she also said that Quetzalcoatl isn't even Mayan. He's an Aztec deity. So people are just making this stuff up. Is it Hollywood that's driving all this? What Dr. McEnany said is that what we do is we project our own fears, our own society onto the past. And so we take the Mayan culture and we just extrapolate and piece it together to form and fit into the narratives that we want to have about the world. And so, you know, there's so much energy around everything that's happening in the world today and has been building up to this year. And we've just kind of put it on to the Mayan culture without taking a deeper look. And I'm just surprised that all of this information about the complete lack of Mayan prophecy relating to this year has just been completely absent from all the History Channel specials and everything else that have been about the end of the world. I wonder when our civilization is, is destroyed and gone, if people have mythos and believe that, that we have predicted the end of the world, you know, by watching Friends or some kind of <laughs> reality television show. Like, oh, Frazier says that the world will end in 3013. Right. <laughs> yeah, but I also thought it was interesting that the ninth and 10th Bakhtuns lined up with the rise and fall of the Mayan civilization, and it makes you wonder, you know, what role this ancient calendar plays in the rise and fall of civilizations. You know, is it tied to some deeper cycle that goes on that these ancient people knew about? And there is a little bit of truth in there, huh? Yeah, it's it's kind of weird how that uh, syncs up. So we'll see what that means moving forward. And so moving forward, we have a conversation with Dennis McKenna because Terence McKenna had so much to do with launching the 2012 meme. And even though later in Terrence's career, he didn't want to say specifically that 2012 was the date where the eschaton occurred and, and all of these things, what he was saying is that novelty was accumulating at a rapid pace and that 2012 was a really key year in all of this novelty accumulation as we move forward as a species. And so let's jump into this clip uh, from Terence that describes a little bit about what he was thinking at the time. The path of complexity to its goals is through connecting things together. Well, if that's true, then you can imagine that there is an ultimate end state of that process. It's the moment when every point in the universe is connected to every other point in the universe. And if that's what the universe is trying to do to overcome its dissipate state, its spread out state, and somehow function as a unitary monad, then uh, this, this point does not lie too far ahead of us in time, given the acceleration rates of, of all these technical processes. So, at least locally. So, on one level, I think there is a cultural singularity. A cultural, what I mean by that is a place in our cultural development where we can't predict or understand what will happen to us. A kind of flip point, if you want, or doorway, if you want, or revelation, if you want. And uh, it's that novelty in its emergence is now operating at such a fine scale that it's actually reflected in the lives of individual people. The human adventure has become the cutting edge uh, of cosmic destiny. And, but it won't always be so. It will actually move through the human domain and into smaller and more 
rapid and compressed domains of concrescence and probably in our lifetimes. And what will this mean or what will it look like? It seems to me it's just not possible to say because we're too far away from it, even though it's only 14 years in the future, if it's in 2012. So Seth, what Terence is talking about there is that all of this novelty that's being generated by the universe is leading towards some kind of cultural singularity. He's speaking from the perspective of 14 years ago, from 1998, and he doesn't know the evolution of all the technologies around us. And he's saying that given technology, given our market-based capitalistic system, that someone's going to create something that wires us all together and connects us and brings about a moment of cultural singularity. And that moment may be in 2012, it may be sometime in our future, but it's going to lead to a rapid transformation of our culture. And I think his basic point about novelty leading to creation of a a moment of cultural singularity is very possible, not only this year, but in the very near future, because we are wired together through the internet And it sounds a lot like what's happening with the Occupy movement, where the network, the peer-to-peer structure, the nodal structure of the internet is actually beginning to mimic the nature of society in the sense that we have all these nodes of Occupy centers in cities around North America and around the world. It is, and we've seen these movements kind of erupting all over the globe. These movements are feeding off of each other. We have the Occupy movement in the United States and around the world that just keeps feeding off of itself and off of these other movements. And they're just, you know, they're influencing government, they're influencing world leaders, they're influencing business. This is is not something that's going to go away. This is the people rising up and voicing their concerns. And we've seen that with online communities such as Reddit, where groups of people are just coming together to stop legislation. The SOPA bill, the Stop Online Piracy bill that's going through Congress right now is losing support rapidly as people around the world are beginning to boycott large businesses. We saw with GoDaddy, they're just stopped, they're just gonna, everyone on Reddit decided on a day that they're just gonna leave GoDaddy, switch all their domains away because they're supporting this bill. And more and more movements like this are just happening around the world. People are realizing that they have the power. People actually have power to change in large groups. And that's what Terrence is talking about in that clip. And so we wanted to talk about Terrence's legacy with the person who knows about it best, and that would be Dennis McKenna, Terrence's brother. And Dennis is working on a book about his life with Terrence. And we spoke with Dennis back in Extra Environmentalist episode 15. And so let's jump right in. You are listening to The Extra Environmentalist, and today we're talking about the year 2012. See my friends all dressed in black, they are creatures of the moon. You might catch them howling in the night or riding on a broom. or 15 years ago, where did you think we'd be as a species headed into 2012 versus where we actually are now? I don't know. 2012 is, is to my mind, and, and has been for a long time, 
you know, a kind of an, an arbitrary date. I mean, I know there's a lot of expectation around it. You know, there's a lot of millenarian, you know, excitement about it. There's the Mayan calendar connection and, and the Terence McKenna time wave connection of all that. But I've always been kind of a skeptic about about 2012. I personally do not think that any enormous catastrophe is going to happen. I mean, I hope not, actually. And, you know, on the other side of the coin, I, I don't really think there's going to be any planetary shift in consciousness either. So I'm sort of a, you know, I'm sort of a skeptic in that sense. And I think that there's a lot of expectation. Terence introduced the idea of novelty and the time wave supposedly measures the ingression of novelty into the world. In writing this book, I've had to grapple with that. I mean, I've thought about it for a long time. And we have a different view of novelty in some ways. Novelty, it, it doesn't erupt into history. It rarely erupts into history. You know, you don't get events like asteroid impacts and gamma knife, uh, you know, events that, I mean, they do happen, but they happen on very rarely on a scale of millions of years. And novelty most of the time does erupt or does find its way into the continuum, but it, it more or less oozes into the continuum. It, it happens gradually. That's harder to measure, and it's harder to define. I mean, when it, when it comes to where were we 10 years ago, where were we 15 years ago, how much has changed? Obviously, a lot has changed, you know. Is there a measurable advance in sort of the evolution of the human species in that time? I'm not sure there is, you know. You know, these types of events tend to uh, happen over much longer time frames, you know, and, and that's one of the things that we have to be aware of, our human perspective. Even the human, a human lifetime is a very short time, you know, in, in the general scheme of things. And so the fact that in some ways things are pretty much the same as they were 15 years ago and in other ways they're quite different, but you don't see that, you know, things that we didn't anticipate happened like 9-11, who imagined that? You know, when I think back to Terence, who was certainly, you know, a visionary in terms of envisioning the future, but so many things have happened since then that he never saw and couldn't have possibly foreseen. It's kind of like the more things change, the more they stay the same. Certainly there are technological developments. You're, you're seeing these, these technologies like hyperconnectivity emerge the fact that 89% of the people or 80% of the people in, in Africa, for example, now have cell phones. And so that's a big change. What is the ultimate global effect of that? It's too early to say, but it, it's changing things. I don't really know, you know, what's going to happen. Nobody does. Speaking of novelty, there's been a lot of change going on. Occupy movement is an example of novelty. We have the euro imploding, yeah. being bailed out by the government powers. We're continuing to move forward with business as usual in a world that just doesn't seem to be able to sustain business as usual. Any perspectives on these events? And, and is there a common theme that we're all missing here? It's hard to say. I mean, I'm, I'm certainly encouraged by the Occupy 
movement, uh, which started in Vancouver largely. I think that is definitely uh, an encouraging thing. Maybe planetary consciousness, or at least uh, in the developed world, is changing that the current models don't really apply anymore, and we have to develop some new approaches to to sustainability. And when we when we anticipate the major events that are going to change everything, you know, we usually think in terms of some kind of natural catastrophe or some kind of global man-made catastrophe. It, it could be something as simple as the collapse of the global economy, and that's going to change everything as well. And that seems to be what's happening. And we're going to go through some rough periods as a result of that. But at the same time, I think I think that that's a hopeful direction because people are going to have to become less consumer oriented. You know, there's going to be a refocus on what you can do locally. I mean, I think it's going to be the implementation of the the idea of think globally, but act locally, you know, do what you can where you are, if everybody did that, the world would change and it would change for the better. Uh, but at the same time, I <laughs> I look at what's going on here on the political stage. I probably spend way too much time paying attention to that. It's pretty discouraging. I don't see our leaders stepping up to the plate and, you know, really solving things. It's like a farce and it's not encouraging. You know, we don't need clowns. We need leaders and thoughtful ones at that. I don't see that happening. On on the level of American politics, I mean, I still think Obama is the best we've got. He's very disappointing in many ways, but look at the alternatives. I don't know how much one can hope for. I mean, I think there's a certain impatience for for change to accelerate and we don't see that happening, you know. And and yet at the same time, other events are are going to overtake the political process and and that's kind of what's scary. We're not very good at long-term forecasting and responding to to things that are on the horizon. Right. And you mentioned global economic collapse and all of the problems that the world's economies are facing there. Do you think that there's any way, you mentioned the hopeful kind of side of that, how an event like that occurring could end up actually being a positive thing in the future, but there's still all of that fear and there's all of the anxiety that's built up around it when looking at everything that could potentially happen. Do you think that there's any way to look at the economic problems that the world's facing right now and to spin it in a way that we could use it to start talking and analyzing about the way that human consciousness works and the way that we think about the world? I think it forces us to look for solutions. In some ways, it, it forces us to look at the long term and, and start planning for the future. But then the question is, how much time do we have left? And, and that's why the idiocy of the political process is so frustrating. Right now, the idea that, at least in the political arena in the States, the idea that global warming is a problem this is a political football and there's one faction that absolutely dismisses this and another that doesn't. And, uh, you know, I mean, it is a problem. And are we going to wait to the point where it becomes so bad 
that we can't deal with it anymore. And we probably already crossed that threshold in some ways. So I don't know. I mean, I, I mean, I think we all hope for a change in consciousness. The changes in, in lifestyle and economics and uh, the way that we take care of the earth and all that would emerge out of that. But first of all, you have to change people's consciousnesses. And I don't see that happening. You know, it seems that the government, the media, all these other forces have too much of a grip on people. It's very hard to break out of it. I guess my current perspective is kind of pessimistic. I guess you could say I'm a worried optimist. You know, I hope that something emerges that changes everything. And some things could emerge, but I'm not sure what that would be. I mean, I don't think the aliens are going to come down in mild-wide ships and, and, you know, save us. You know, I, I think we're still faced with the same problems we were faced with 15 years ago and the same solution, which is that nobody is going to pull our ass out of the fire but us. You know, we've got to do it ourselves. Same realization 15 years further on. So we have that much less time and and the solutions are going to have to be that much more radical. How can we go about working with this reality and this situation in our day-to-day lives? From any insights or uh, from, from your side of the world, we can't rely on the political system because of the corruption and because, like you're saying, it's just been mm-hmm. spinning its wheels for so long. Is there something that we can do just among the people that we care about and the people that we work with as we move into 2012 that could potentially help us build either, you know, this change in in looking at the world or this change in in our own lives? I think that that's really our only hope to deal with the people that we care about, the people that we interact with directly, try to foster changes in consciousness in those circles and then hope that you can spread it. You can get it to spread. I've always said, and I think, you know, in this respect, the psychedelics are very encouraging, very helpful in that they are one of the few tools that we, the people have that can bring about changes in in consciousness, changes in hearts and minds. So, I think that's a tool that we have to use in a way that's very responsible and loving because it can change people's perspective. And once they learn what they have to to tell you, then they can spread the word. But the problem is it's a slow process and we need things to move faster. And, and, you know, humanity's relationship with these teacher plants is an evolutionary process. So, It's been going on for thousands of years, and it takes its own sweet time. You know, we need solutions that can be implemented right now because it's not clear that we have a lot of time. Uh, We don't have a lot of time. You guys are all, what, 20-something? You're going to live to the end of the 21st century. And I just can't imagine what the world's going to be like at the end of the 21st century. But I think as a habitable place it may not be such a great place to be. You know, it may not even be habitable at that point. You know, some of these environmental changes, I think that's got to be our main preoccupation, really. I mean, some of these environmental changes, you know, they're geological, they're 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 global, and, and they happen almost imperceptibly. But at a certain point, these processes cross a threshold where you get feedback loops happening that accelerate the whole thing. 
you know, at a certain point, you may reach a point where, you know, a certain threshold is crossed and these processes, uh, not only can they not be stopped, but they happen much faster. And that's the worry that I have. You know, once you get global climate change happening, you know, at a certain point, it can happen very rapidly. You get a runaway effect. This is what we really ought to be thinking about and planning for. But the dialogue is stuck back in in the 90s. I mean, you know, you can't even get these clowns to admit that global warming is real. We may be like many civilizations in the galaxies, in a sense. When, When the aliens finally do show up, they'll say, well, you know, here is another advanced civilization that was too stupid and they managed to drown themselves in their own shit. <laughs> that may be how, yeah. it, how it turns out. And you, you've mentioned psychedelics a number of times and in terms of trying to find solutions. We've talked also about putting a select bunch of our leaders together and then dosing them with a high amount of psychedelic plants, some sort of way like that. How would this help them to understand the dire circumstances we find ourselves and what sort of outcome could we expect from this sort of therapy? That could make a whole difference. That That's a wonderful idea. But how are you going to do it? You know, I mean, that's how are you going to do it? But that is one approach. And, and to some degree, I think that is happening. You know, uh, people, the change makers, people who are in a position to make a difference are beginning to discover these things. And, you know, you can't corral a bunch of these people into, you know, an ayahuasca maloca somewhere in the Amazon and say, okay, now, damn it, you're going to eat, you're going to drink this brew or eat these mushrooms. Sit down, shut up and pay attention. You can't force them to do it. You have to work through the network more subtly, you know, friends talking to friends, talking to friends, People growing plants, teaching other people how to grow the plants, how to prepare them, how to use them. I mean, this wisdom is growing, but it's an underground phenomenon. It's forbidden. It's forbidden knowledge. Um, So you have to risk repression and all that. I mean, you're forced in, in our country to break the law to work with these plants. But for somebody, for example, somebody like Steve Jobs who made a tremendous difference, I think, in the way we understand technology and the way that we relate to technology and what it's for. You know, for him to come out and say, my LSD experiences were the most significant experiences of my life. I mean, that's a huge thing. Does anyone hear it? I'm not sure. I mean, you hear it. I hear it. A lot of people hear it. Does it make any difference? Or do people just say, well, I don't know. I can't relate to that. That's what he says. So what? You know. So we need more of that. We need people to actually be more sort of out front about articulating that, that there are these tools and these mechanisms for changing consciousness, for changing the way that we think. Perhaps it should be a requirement to be a senator, that you have to ha- take X number of hours of spiritual guidance through the uh, plants. <laughs> <laughs> Tell that to our senators. I mean, that's... Yeah. That's blasphemy, you know? I mean, and they, most of them are still stuck in this, you know, they're fundamentalist Christians. I mean, they're they're stuck in that authoritarian model. Actually, I think that in some sense that the more radical forms of uh, fundamentalism are, are dangerous poisons to collective consciousness because their whole thing is the end of the world, bring it on. You know, they want the world to end. 
So these are hardly people who are going to take major steps to prevent the end of the world. They'd love to see that happen. Thanks for uh, speaking with us today. And we just wanted to close out by asking you any closing thoughts that you would have on any of the topics we've talked about today. Well, first of all, I don't want, I mean, I don't want to bring everybody down, right? I'm, uh, <laughs> it's kind of a not very optimistic conversation, but yet hope springs eternal and you can always hope i mean i'd be happy if the world was swept by a wave of common sense and clear thinking that would be apocalypse enough for me and it would make all the difference in the world if we would just start talking to each other and thinking clearly instead of talking past each other and not thinking at all so i think that's our best hope if as individuals we step up to the plate and speak truth to power in a certain sense, speak clearly and think clearly and share our insights with other people in a, in a loving way. That's a very hopeful thing. And that may be the only thing that will ever save us. So I say that, uh, I don't want to leave on a totally down note here because, uh, you know, as long as we're all alive, there's always hope. That's kind of how I approach every day, every day I get up and I'm happy to be alive and lucky. And I guess we all are in a certain sense. You know, when you think how improbable that is, uh, you know, in the scheme of things. Yeah, so Dennis had some very interesting things to say as well. I, I like the part where he was talking about even the darkest hour of humanity, hope runs eternal. And that's something that, that's really a positive message. And it's, it's a nice thing to think about, that even when in the darkest hour of humanity, that there's still light at the end of the tunnel. Yeah, so like Dennis was saying, is what the major theme now is that a lot of people 10, 20 years ago were talking about this major consciousness shift that would hopefully happen in 2012. And in a lot of ways, that's coming true with the economic collapse that Dennis was talking about. We're seeing our economic system being pulled out from under us and no longer meeting our needs as people, even the people that it served the most in the American or European middle class like they're finding that the economic system is no longer meeting their needs. And so what that's saying is that we really do have to change the way that we think about how we live on the planet. And it means that economic alternatives are going to be on the table for the first time since we've had industrial civilization, since the early 1900s and, and late 1800s. And that's really exciting. You know, there's a lot of uh, despair and gloom that can be tied to that. But it means that policy alternatives are actually going to be able to make it to the table. And we're going to have to go through this transition. But that means that we can reorganize into a different type of structure that quite possibly, as we spoke about with Joseph Tainter, could avoid the major die-off that he was talking about. I think anytime we can avoid the major die-offs, it's a good thing. 
Yeah, exactly. So that's why we're speaking with Mike Rupert next about what's going on in the world right now, what are we facing, and what are his thoughts headed into this momentous time. We recorded with Mike on the winter solstice on December the 21st, so he had a few thoughts that were uh, pertinent to that day, but we'll jump right into our conversation with Mike and see where he takes us. You are listening to The Extra Environmentalist, and today we're talking about the year 2012. You've been talking about this bigger picture that's been going on in the world, driven by energy availability uh, that's leading to this collapse in society. So in looking at that bigger picture, are you surprised at the ability for central banks to continually intervene and prop this whole thing up when it looks like the wheels are about to fall off and we're a week away from like a major bank run or something. They just pump a ton of money into the system and then keep it going. That's a little bit of an oversimplification because uh, as the world is experiencing now, especially Europe, as the Italian government and the Greek government are taken over by banks, Every time money is pumped into the system, there is a cause and effect. It's not just pumping into money into the system, and then all of a sudden we get a few more months, because that leads people to think, as they mistakenly did after 2008, that you can just print money forever and everything's fine. But the truth of the matter is, is that every time money is printed, more debt is created, and the service of that debt becomes a burden to the point where uh, in the infinite growth economic paradigm, and with banks clearly controlling most of the world's governments, uh, every time more money is printed, human beings suffer and pay dearly in loss of services and collapsing economies and government services ending, so on and so forth. What is to prevent governments from keeping just the same cycle, printing more money and more money? They've been doing it for years and years. Why can't they keep doing it? Well, because first of all, money is debt. All of nature, every ecosystem, every system on this planet, and we are contained on this planet, it's a closed sphere, has feedback loops. And uh, there's no such thing as a free lunch in nature. Nature is extremely efficient uh, in terms of balancing energy and rewarding those who live uh, within good energy uh, guidelines and and, uh, punishing those who don't. But it's as I said in the movie Collapse, you cannot eat a dollar bill. You can't stuff a $20 bill into your gas tank. There's no power in the money itself, and that is the great illusion. And what is happening now is that the reality of physical limitations is, is, is colliding with all of these trillions and hundreds of trillions. There's $1.4 quadrillion in derivatives out there. There's not enough energy or resources to pay all that off. So this is, this is the bucket of cold water in the face for the human species when we realize that there is no free lunch and money itself has no power. You mentioned your movie Collapse, and someone who has watched this movie can probably feel, I mean, you can rest assured they feel, feel pretty scared watching this movie. Is there a way for people to adapt to Collapse? Is there something that we can do to help ourselves through Collapse? What do we do to make it through this rough time in human history and come out the other side? I would say that for roughly... 15 years now, but certainly for uh, solidly for the last decade, around the world, uh, hundreds, thousands of people have been researching this question and compiling information and helping to prepare. The, the issue now is, is not so much starting from scratch as it is getting the knowledge that's available for how to make a transition into people's heads and to make them start taking action on it. 
one of the things that you've been covering in your work very recently are all of the major energy problems and blackouts that are emerging around the world. Right. And it's unbelievable how little coverage this gets in any kind of Western media. I mean, you know, the mainstream media is completely diluted, but even the side alternative sources of media quite typically are not covering these stories of trains shutting down in Pakistan mm -hmm. and India. There's a week or two of coal remaining at many of their plants. You know, this is becoming a serious problem as the market system that the world has used to regulate all of these energy uh, and fuel sh sources is, right. is breaking down. And people aren't picking that up. But what do you have to say about the blackouts that we're seeing? And even just earlier this week, we saw the spectacle of Monday Night Football disrupted uh, yeah. with a blackout itself. I started tracking on my old blog, which is, uh, has gone inactive since we launched CollapseNet about 18 months ago. But in 2007, I started tracking cities and towns shutting out first large swaths of streetlights, but then entire cities uh, shutting them down to save money because they couldn't afford the oil when oil, when oil was racing towards $147 a barrel. And it, it's funny that we probably posted uh, three, 400 of these stories uh, of literally the streetlights going out around the world. We haven't published one about them coming back on again. I remember seeing a photograph in uh, National Geographic. It was uh, Earth at Night, and it was this amazing picture of the whole earth, you know, with, with all the lights in all the cities around the world. And those lights are going out, and they aren't coming back on. As to explaining why people can or cannot or do not see or understand that, that's a difficult issue because basically the human race has some very serious mental, spiritual, <laughs> intellectual issues about dealing with reality. But it's going to become obvious soon enough. I mean, we had major blackouts at an NFL game at Giant Stadium last year, same causes. Uh, but that didn't seem to get people's attention. It, it's something that people pay uh, pay attention to for a couple of minutes uh, and then forget about it until it happens to them permanently. And, of course, by then it's too late. The lights are out. So you raise a really interesting point. We talked to a lot of our guests on the show about the complexity of modern-day life, the distraction it presents people with. We have massive media distraction. We take the kids to soccer practice every day. We're working at meaningless jobs really, really hard. Why is it so hard for people to think longer term, to understand these trends towards collapse and the end of the expansionist world as we know it? The American people have been bred, conditioned, trained, brainwashed, and manipulated into being blind, pretty dumb sheeple. But now, see, this is, this is very different for me because I've been at this for so long that I no longer walk around saying, look at all the people that don't get it. I'm awash in the people who do, and those are the ones that we re really need to focus on. Just forget all those people who don't get it. Just throw them out with the bathwater. There's no point in trying to teach them about it now. Well, I wouldn't say throw them out. I mean, I would say leave the door open for them when they wake up. But it's, it's, it's not energy efficient. If you have 100 calories of energy, you can waste 100 calories trying to convince somebody who doesn't get it. And then you will be depleted to help somebody who does get it that might have only taken you 10 calories of energy to help. One has to approach all of this from like an from a uh, an energy return for energy invested. Uh, I personally think it's pathological stupidity to go out and try to convince somebody who doesn't want to hear. Why waste your time? There are tens of millions of people around the world who do clearly understand what's happening. And a lifeboat movement around the world is huge. CollapseNet, my company, has members in 68 countries. The transition initiatives around the world, there, you know, there's 111, I think, or 117 now initiatives in the United States. 
They're all over the world. This is a very, very active culture that's around the world. And I think it's a mistake for those of us on this side of the line with this awareness to worry about the people who don't get it. When we need to be serving the ones of us who will be our tribe members and who will be our lifeboat mates. And so we were talking just a minute ago about all the blackouts that are occurring around the world and people in the modern United States can't really, for the most part, unless they've traveled to somewhere that only has electricity for a few hours a day, or like in Iraq that's just had its electricity infrastructure devastated through, you know, over a decade of U.S. war there, what it's like to lose electricity and to not have the, the lifeblood of the industrial area of electricity around. One of the biggest problems as we move forward through these next few months is fear that people have as they see their savings wiped out, as they see the support systems that they have relied on for their entire lives and have invested in, assuming security would be there, starting to get taken away. And electricity is just one of those. How do you think we can manage that fear as it as it comes about? I don't think managing fear is the question. The issue is to position yourself and those you love and those in your community in a, in a place where the fear cannot disrupt your ability to care for yourself. It is not our job or anybody else's job to manage the panic or the rage that is taking place. There's no program that'll do that. There's no magic bullet. There's no crystal. This is going to be extremely messy. It's going to be extremely violent. It's going to be extremely unpleasant and let us disabuse ourselves of the notion that we can do something to make it all come up smelling like buttercups and roses. What do you see happening in the first half or so of 2012? We've got all these major trends converging of financial collapse and uh, energy shortages around the world. What can people really look for? We have to survive the next couple of weeks. I'm probably seeing you to almost anybody else has been writing about this stuff now. Uh, for a long time and uh, and studying it. And I have known for a long time that there would come a point where there would be so much uncertainty and chaos that you would not be able to predict. And we're on the cusp of that right now. We're on the edge of a global thermonuclear war. Don't ask me to tell you what it might look like six months after that happens if it happens. We don't want to know what that is. But uh, the, the tensions over Syria and Iran are building Tensions are building in the South China Sea, where the China and Japan, the U.S., the Philippines are squaring off over the oil routes and some small oil deposits in the South China Sea. And very belligerent moves are being made by the United States government, and, and uh, we've had nuclear facilities blown up in Iran. Shots have been fired. So I don't know what to say to look for after that. We want to prevent that escalating to a, to a nuclear conflict, because if, if the United States or Israel does attack Iran, China has vowed to, to back Iran. That's a global world conflict. On the other hand, with respect to economics, the Europe death dance is pathetic, but it's very clear that the, that the European Union is finished. And whether it lasts another 10 days or, or, or whatever, with all of their absolutely futile efforts to resurrect it, because every effort that they make is based upon assuming unprecedented infinite growth to pay off all the bailouts that have been passed, which is never going to happen. I seriously expect that the EU will uh, be pronounced dead sometime in January, no matter what they try to say about it. And with that, the economic collapse that is, that, that is proceeding apace in the United States and also in China, China's having massive economic problems, will lead to major bank failures, huge numbers of people losing their employment as global trade collapses, probably bank failures, bank runs, the FDIC will go insolvent. We will see a breakdown in social order, and that's obvious. 
that's why I, I you know, I personally uh, recommend to all of my subscribers that get out of a big city is probably the smartest thing you can do if you're in one. So we've we've been seeing these movements popping up across the world, the Arab Spring in, in the Middle East, and then we've seen the Occupy movement in the United States. How do these movements fit into these world contexts and with all these uprisings and popular movements against the, the larger government? Occupy stands by itself. It is unique. No other movement has ever done what the Occupy movement was, has been able to accomplish. And so that stands alone. And, it, and the Occupy movement has been successful because, number one, it adopted and with enormous discipline and uh, self-will adhered strictly to a policy of nonviolence. We'll take whatever you throw at us, you beat us, you shoot us, uh, you spray us with, you run us over. We are not violent. That has been a miracle. And I think also the major importance of the Occupy movement has been in its uh, failure to issue a, a list of demands. I mean, the best Occupy statement that I heard, somebody stuck a mic in, in the face of a, an Occupy Wall Street protester. What are you protesting? Everything. And that's the truth of the situation. I have been around movements since the Iran-Contra days in the mid-80s, and I've been deeply involved in many of them. And I've met many longtime activists. Daniel Ellsberg is a friend, Kathleen Cleaver, the old Black Panther Party. I've been around the uh, block. I am not an advocate of movements because all the movements I've witnessed in my lifetime accomplished absolutely nothing. I remember 300,000 people in the streets in San Francisco before Iraq. Did that prevent anything? And the lefty, liberal, progressive concept of a movement uh, is useless now. But Occupy has made governments sit down and change. It has made governments rethink. It has brought governments to the table. And it has carved out a space. And I have not seen any other movement do that in my lifetime. The Arab Spring uh, and, and all the Arab revolts, Egypt is, is uh, as we speak tonight, a bloody mess. The uh, Egyptian military and president having turned on the same people who were in, in tents who they were talking to a few days ago. And all the other movements have resulted in violence. But uh, I have to give a special tip of the hat to the Occupy London and the Occupy London Stock Exchange movement because they have been artful masters with St. Paul's Cathedral and in the city of London in establishing a sound presence that has got the government to pay attention. Now, as to whether any of these movements are going to save the planet, I don't know. The time is now 11.59 and 59 seconds on the clock of human existence. But I do know that Occupy is the last best hope for mankind to achieve a collective change of consciousness that would enable us to really address some of these issues. And so you mentioned how the Occupy movement has brought governments to start changing or at least address things that they never have before, that no other movement has before. But one of the things that we've seen over the last few weeks, especially in the United States, is the rapid change in legal structures in the ability to deal with U.S. citizens. How do you think that people who have been part of the Occupy movement can see the changes that are going on in U.S. laws and still have courage and get out there to face what could be a very nasty situation very soon. In a ham and eggs breakfast, the chicken is involved, but the pig is committed. <laughs> Occupy is a pig. It's all of our collective asses and lives on the line. There is nothing left to lose. Yes, the United States is, is absolutely racing and descending 
into a fascist dictatorship. Our Constitution has been raped, murdered, cut into a thousand pieces, and tortured. Uh, but that's happening all over the world, and that's not something you address on a nation-by-nation -nation basis. This is what happens as the infinite growth paradigm defends itself. It has been utterly predictable. I disagree with a lot of people on the right who warn about FEMA concentration camps and 300 million people. That's nonsense because it takes too much resources to do that. But the dark night of fascism and oppression that is coming down, everybody needs to remember that's only temporary because you can't even maintain that without energy and without resources. And there's not enough energy and there's not enough resources to take care of 7 billion people on the planet the way we live now. This global fascist oppressive, it's going to be nasty, it's going to be murderous, but it's not going to last. If we've watched your movies, we've read your blogs, we've heard, listened to you talk about all these ideas, about how we're at 1159.99 seconds left on the clock of humanity. Mm -hmm. Where's humanity in 10 years from now? What's after this ex explosion? Where is our culture, where is our society land after this whole thing has gone down? I have down? no idea. No idea. But I have, I have dedicated my life. 30 years of my books, writings, movies, speeches, everything, to making sure that once the collapse has occurred, on the other side of that, there is a, a, enough of a, a healthy, aware, balanced consciousness trained to live in a resource-based economy in balance with the planet and with nature. It would be supreme egotism on my part to try and predict what it's going to look like when I don't know if we're going to survive through a nuclear conflict that could happen any minute. I've been involved with peak oil for exactly 10 years, 10 years and two months now. And, and, and I have grown sick of people laying out their vision for what the world's going to look like in 10 years or five years, because not one of those things that I have ever seen predicted has turned out to be right. So Mike, as we were talking about at the start of the conversation, every single time that the printing presses get cranked up, the stakes get higher because of all the debt in the system. Do you see a way forward for humanity with so much debt in the system? Universal debt forgiveness is going to be absolutely necessary because all the debts that's out here cannot physically ever be repaid anyway. Everybody just needs to get that. And once there is a debt jubilee, once there is that, it will have to be universal. All debts between persons and corporations, all debts between corporations and corporations, and all debts between sovereign and corporation have to go all at once across the board. And at the same time, what has to happen with that, or else you just start the whole mess over again, is you have to eliminate fractional reserve banking, compound interest, and fiat currency, because that's the infinite growth pyramid scheme. Necessity is the mother of, of invention, and thank God we have thinkers like Charles Eisenstein out here. I love him. I've had him on my radio show a couple times. So th there's a lot of work being done on this, but I really suspect that most of it won't be done until we have enough people with a clear consciousness that, that are just faced with the task of doing it or dying. So you said it's not worth our time to deal with people who don't seem to care about these issues. But there are those people you care deeply about, your friends that you've known forever and your family. How do you deal with these people? And why are Americans so brainwashed and averse to dealing with these tough, tough issues? And you've, you've talked about media keeping them yeah. in their boxes and uh, education. But is there a way to reach these people that you care about, like your family members? Is there a way no. to get through <laughs> these, these walls and to, to reach them? No. What you do is you can engender resentment and you can burn yourself out. 
And trust me, I've been hearing this for a long period of time. And, you know, we're a tremendously codependent, dysfunctional society, the United States. We will waste all of our energy chasing somebody who doesn't want to hear, holding onto their ankle as they walk away down the sidewalk. And, and we'll miss 50 people who love us and want to listen to what we have to say. Uh, if there's members in your family who don't want to hear it, the best thing you can do is mention it to them once, say we're in serious trouble, there's a lot of people that have some answers, if you don't want to hear about it, fine, but when the light bulb goes on for you, we're here, and then don't waste any more personal energy on that, because if you do, it's on you and it's your fault, you made the choice to waste the energy. You cannot change the way people think. There are five stages of grief, the first is denial, and that's a psychological, emotional, spiritual process, and you have to let people go through that. You have to stand back. Uh, or else sacrifice yourself, too, needlessly for that. The American people, uh, I've done a lot of work with uh, spies and intelligence. I've been around that block a great many times. I come from a CIA family, and I was a whistleblower for, on a lot of really nasty covert operations. And, and uh, I had a source tell me he was in a meeting with uh, the, the CIA director, William Casey, appointed by Ronald Reagan in 1981. And I was told that uh, in his first briefing as DCI, William Casey said, we will know that we have been successful when everything that the American people believe is true is false. Mm. What we're facing now is pure evil. There is no other way to describe it, because even the powers that be, the richest 1% of the 1% who control the monetary paradigm can absolutely see that we're destroying the planet and that we risk killing all life on the planet, that this is not sustainable, and yet they continue to do it with incredible ferocity and focus. There's no other way to really approach this but to understand that this is, uh, th this is ultimately a challenge between good and evil, the light and dark, and there's a great balancing that is about to take place. And I'm very optimistic on that because I, you know, I have a very active spiritual life. And there are very strong spiritual components to this because everything that mankind has ever held sacred is on the table now. God is on the table. Everything is on the table. And I'm, and I'm very much a Jeffersonian uh, in, in that position, in, in that I think you need to tear up the paper like every five years and start with a new piece of paper. And we have forestalled that for a long time. So the weight of many thousands of years of bad human thinking is all on the shoulders right now of seven billion people. And But I really am overjoyed to be aware of how many millions of people around the world get this. And uh, I had a, a piece of correspondence recently with a former Army Ranger who, who, who was making the point that, like you guys did, like, we have to work harder to get more people to see. And it just dawned on me, no, no. I think what we really need is a moment when all of us who actually do see this and understand it can see everyone else who sees it and understand it. Because as soon as we see each other, we are not going to worry about the people who don't see we're going to realize that, that, that a paradigm shift in human consciousness has occurred and that uh, post-petroleum human is alive and well. Is there anything that you have been thinking about today that's on your mind that uh, we haven't asked you about and you'd like to share with us? What I am acutely aware of today, which is uh, the winter solstice. It's the shortest day of the year. As of tomorrow, there will be a little more sunlight every day instead of a little less. And on a spiritual and emotional basis, it's my prayer that that'll be what happens in the world and in human consciousness as well. But this is a movie, past the popcorn. There is no guarantee for what the ending's going to be. But having worked at this you know, for 35 years, not knowing where it was going to wind up, I can truly say that as, as we close out 2011, that that phase of my life, the warning preparation phase, is over. And we will see 
uh, all of us who have been laboring for so long, and I tip my hat to everybody, in peak oil, transition, sustainability, permaculture, you know, all of us, what we're going to find out is really how good a job we've done in 2012. And I think we're going to be surprised. I think there's going to be some strong pockets, and I think there's going to be, as things get worse, people will be pushed into a position where they wake up a little bit faster, and we have uh, we have arms big enough to hold them, and at CollapseNet, we've got 1,600 entries in our Lighthouse directory, so you don't have to invent the wheel when you discover all the things. There's a lot of us been working to prepare people for this, and we're all here waiting for the knock on the door. We'll be here waiting for those people when they wake up. You're damn right we will. <laughs> That's right. Keep the flag flying, boys. Do you remember the Great Depression when uh, one day everybody was doing business and things were going along pretty well and the next day there were bread lines. It was like someone came to work and they said to him, sorry chum but you can't build today. No, no building can go on, we don't have enough inches. He said, what do you mean we don't have enough inches? We got wood, haven't we? We got metal, we even got tape measures. They say, yeah, but you don't understand the business world. Uh, we just haven't got enough inches, just plain inches. Uh, we've used too much of them. And that's exactly what happened when we had the Depression. Because money is something of the same order of reality as inches, grams, meters, pounds, or lines of latitude and longitude. It is an abstraction. It is a method of bookkeeping to obviate the cumbersome procedures of barter. But our culture is entirely hung up on the notion that money has an independent reality of its own. And this is a very striking, concrete example of what I'm going to talk about, of the way we are bamboozled by our thoughts, which are symbols and uh, w what we can do to become unbamboozled. Another example of this fantastic confusion is that not so long ago, the Congress voted a law imposing stern penalties upon anyone who should presume to burn the American flag. And they put this law through with a great deal of patriotic oratory and the quoting of poems and so on about old glory, ignoring the fact entirely that these same congressmen, by acts of commission or omission, are burning up that for which the flag stands. They are allowing the utter pollution of our waters, of our atmosphere, the devastation of our forests. But you see, they don't see, they don't notice the difference between the flag and the country. As Kozhybski pointed out, the difference between the map and the territory. And you heard 
the wise words of Alan Watts there wrapping up our conversation with Mike Rupert about where we're at in the world today. And even though, like he said, it's a very messy situation and we can't do anything to manage the fear that people are going to face as you know they, they go through this economic transition, he said that the sustainability advocates, the people who have been preparing in transition towns, are going to find out that we've done a lot better than we think that we do have some things that we can stand on as we go through this. I don't know. What do you think, Seth? Do you think that people having a garden in their front yard is going to be able to help them take a leadership role as all the global economic problems uh, manifest themselves over the next year? Mike said a lot of interesting things. And one of the things that I that really resonated with me was we asked him a couple times about how do we get people to come over to this side to understand these messages that we're talking about that he's been talking about for so very long. And the conclusion kind of was you just have to leave the door open for these people. And even when you don't get through to them, you just kind of leave the door open and hope that maybe one day that they'll understand your message and it's not worth the energy spent to to try to beat them over the head with these ideas, to try to tell them over and over again that the world is going to change drastically. If the, if the evidence is not clear enough for them, then that's their fault and it's not your fault and you need to move on to somebody who can really appreciate it. That kind of message is something that, that I've been struggling with for a long time because a lot of people in my life have not really understood these messages and I've oh, I've tried constantly to try to un- make them understand. But when people don't want to understand, it's hard to make them understand. So imagine what it's like to be Mike Rupert and to see this back in the early 2000s after September 11th, 2001 happened. And he's like, wow, the global oil picture is totally different from what everyone has thought before. And he starts writing about it and he's publishing it. And here we are 10 years later, headed into the economic problems that he's been talking about for so long to say that they're coming are here and they're here in full force and they're causing massive changes in people's lives. And, you know, it's like, hey, I've been telling you guys for a decade now that this is this is going to happen. And now it's happening. I'm telling you it's happening. And still, the majority of people don't listen. You know, what does that feel like? It's got to be some real I told you so moments in that for him. I'm I'm sure that as these things happen, he just he just shakes his head and says, wow, what what, what can you do? What can you say? But I think the message really that comes across to me at the end of that interview was that we have that door that's going to stay open for people. We're going to have those messages. We're going to have those lighthouses and be those bastions of hope and, and safety and kind of guiding people towards these messages of understanding. And when they do come around and they and they do manifest that fear that we talked about not being our responsibility to to manage having these different tools available for people to come to and to look towards and to look use as models will be really really helpful to those people even the ones that that told us we were crazy a long time ago and said that to told Mike Rupert that he was he was nuts to even think about this stuff and like he said there's going to be a lot of fear in society and so every single little thing every little step that we can do to put ourselves in a better position whether that's financially physically security wise is just going to be one less person that's freaking out uh, if you know there's a commercial shortage and you can't get food on the shelf for a few days or a week at a time. I was just seeing recently that the largest independent petroleum uh, refinery in Europe had to suspend operations for a few weeks starting in this new year because they can't get credit because the credit clearinghouses that they use as a company 
are is no it's freezing up all the credits freezing up around the world it's exactly like what happened in 2008 except it's happening again in 2012 but even bigger force and so what that means is as this whole derivatives bubble deflates as all the economic problems occur around the world there's a real possibility of commercial shortages for a short period of time or an extended period of time so that just means that the more you can do to expect these sorts of things and to have taken the basic necessities and the basic steps to prepare yourself you're going to be one less scared person as opposed to all the other people who might be out there freaking out and that can be a really bad situation it can be so in in speaking about how to move forward Next up, we have a conversation with Charles Eisenstein, and the, there's a lot of reasons why we're in this situation in the world right now, but one of the big problems with our entire economic system that we revisit again and again on our show is that there's all this debt that's been accumulated, and it's unrepayable. And so eventually, it gets to a point where we have to say, if there's all this debt that's not repayable, we can either grind countries like Ireland and Greece into the grindstone and press their nose to the ground and say, pay up, guys, you got to suffer to do it. Or we realize that even when countries like Italy that have some of the largest uh, accumulated debts in the world can't even pay up, can we really take every country and hold their nose to the pavement and say, pay up, guys, you got to suffer? Eventually, it gets to a point where you've got to start considering an alternative. And that's what we're here to talk about with Charles Eisenstein today. So let's jump into the next interview here with Charles Eisenstein and see what we can do to help mitigate some of this disaster that's coming our way and to try to make the world a more loving and happy place. You are listening to The Extra Environmentalist, and we are talking today about the year 2012. So we wanted to ask you what were your thoughts focusing on as we start off 2012. We don't want to ask you to predict or anything specific or you know, forecast the future, but what have you been thinking about heading into this new year? What have your thoughts been, your resolutions yeah. and your thoughts and those kind of things? Yeah, well, I had some resolutions that I, uh, I broke on January 2nd. <laughs> but as far as the new year goes, I'm, I think it's going to be a pretty wild ride. Some people at the end of the year will say, yep, see? It was the end of the world as we know it. And other people will say, yeah, see, it was just another year. But I think that it will be a wild enough ride that it'll be open to any interpretation that you project onto it. And I feel a lot of uncertainty, almost like I hesitate to start any long-term plan, knowing that I'm probably going to have to adapt to changing circumstances. But I definitely don't have a feeling of doom. It's more of a feeling of positive anticipation and excitement and a bit of you know, getting ready to hold on tight. Where you're living in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, the city 
itself is going bankrupt. They had this failed incinerator project, and I was actually in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, just passed through and stopped off at a restaurant. And the place is definitely suffering because of issues of debt. So can you talk a little bit about what you know regarding the local situation and what it's like in Harrisburg? You know, I actually haven't followed that story too much. My impression is that there were there was, you know, a certain amount of inefficiency and corruption around that project, but on a deeper level, I mean, you know, what what Harrisburg is going through is not unusual. It's just a, a little bit more extreme, but you know, municipalities all over the place are having trouble meeting their budgets meeting their pension obligations, and they come under pressure in various ways to cut costs. It's the local version of austerity. And on even a more global scale or historical scale, this isn't unusual either. I mean, the basic pattern is that you get somebody into debt and then they serve you for the rest of their lives. Most you know, economists have this kind of fantasy that economics is a matter of free agents offering their labor in a free market and so forth. But most workers in the history of Earth have been debtors and have been in one way or another forced to render up their productivity to the owner of the debt. And in a way, it's not that different today, where cities like Harrisburg uh, or countries like Greece, in order to meet their bond obligations, have to render up more and more of their substance to the owner of the debt. And that could take the form of cutting pensions or cutting services or privatizing things until there's nothing left. So you're talking about the debt burden of Harrisburg and the debt burden of Greece. Are there any historical precedents for what nations or kingdoms have done when there is so much debt that has accumulated in the society that it could no longer be dealt with? Historically, a lot of rulers would proclaim a debt jubilee from time to time when the social pressure from the debtors and the social strains caused by people being forced to sell their children into slavery, sell themselves into slavery, sell their lands became too great. And and today you know, we're facing a similar problem, even if you can't actually be thrown into a debtor's prison, generally speaking, and you can't sell your children into slavery. It's almost that bad where, you know, for children, for example, you know, in order to get the education that you need to have a place in society, you have to go into deep debt, which takes half of your productive life or more to pay off. That may not be slavery in the most brutal terms, as far as ripping you from your context and casting you among the strangers, but from the sense of all of my extra productivity doesn't go to me, it goes to this other entity. It is kind of slavery. You know, going back to really ancient times, debt, especially when it bears interest, causes social inequality, it causes concentration of wealth. And you end up with more and more people in debt. And the debt's growing and growing. And the creditors who themselves might be under financial pressure to their creditors, exacting more and more from the debtors. You know, first it's their income, more and more of their income then their assets, their land, and in ancient societies, eventually their freedom, their children, their, their wives. Uh, these things would all be pledged as surety for debts, and it was unsustainable. The only way that it could be sustained is if the economy is growing so fast that it's growing fast enough to cover the interest. 
And we kind of had that in the post-World War II period. We had uh, growth that was fast enough and legal limits on interest. I mean, you couldn't charge more than 7 or 10% interest uh, in the post-war decades. It was illegal. It was only in the, I think it was the 1990s that the usury laws were changed and, you know, credit card companies were able to charge 17%, 23%, 28%, and so forth. But we have the same kind of problem that they had in the ancient world where the debtors are having to, to devote more and more of their livelihood to service the debts. And it's equally unsustainable unless the economy can keep growing. But at the same time now, we're seeing the end of economic growth, or certainly the end of such rapid economic growth. I think that's what's behind the crisis today. It's not just a debt bubble. It's also the end of growth. So that leads to you know one, one solution. It says, well, why can't we do what we did in ancient times and, and just forgive the debts? And I think that we're going to have to do something like that, um, although we could maybe do it in a smarter way. You know, many commentators have pointed out that if you forgive all debts or erase all debts, you're also erasing, you know, all the pension funds, um, grandma's savings, and, you know, everything else. All savings are gone along with all debts because, you know, one person's savings account is another person's bank loan because money is created that way. In order to avoid that kind of dislocation, we have to be smart about how we alleviate the debts. And if we aren't smart about it, then the whole thing will just eventually collapse and blow up. So there's really no choice. And I think the financial elites are beginning to understand that uh, and maybe behind closed doors to um, entertain solutions that are more radical than the ones that are being perpetrated today which are no solution at all, but really just, you know, postponing the inevitable for a few more years. I mean, that's what's going on in Europe. You know, we'll, we'll roll over the loans, give them new loans, guarantee new loans, and hope that the economy will grow in the meantime so that the debtor countries will be more able to pay off the loans in two, three years than they are now. So it's kind of this forlorn hope that depends on economic growth. But if it doesn't happen, then the situation will be even worse when the new loans come due. And the countries will have to devote even more of their public sector, their pensions, their social guarantees, their public services to the payment of debt. The IMF was recently in Greece, and they've been exploring the government and seeing, you know, how long is it going to take this country to get back to normal with all these loans and all this austerity. They found out that even with a 50% debt haircut, things are much worse than they thought and that the country would still have to default. And yeah. so what do you think would happen if a major economist comes out and finally writes a paper or publicly states something to the effect of all this debt is not going to be able to be paid back and we have to figure out something to do with it? I, I think um, some major economists are already saying that. You know, it's, 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 I think it's pretty much common knowledge. Is it really common knowledge? Because, I mean, so many mainstream media sources just refuse to even go that direction. I mean, the president will not, will not say anything. The Congress doesn't want to say anything about it. Is it really in the mainstream? Well, I don't know. I mean, maybe I'm in uh, an echo chamber. Uh, the people I read pretty much think it's a foregone conclusion that Greece will default and probably other countries as well. And I think that there is definitely some mention of that in fairly mainstream media. It's just that the full consequences of it aren't really drawn out. 
and no one really knows what will happen. If it's just grease, uh, it can be contained in some way. And there's all this stuff about how it will play out. Will the European Currency Board, you know, take on more and more power and therefore disempower sovereign governments uh, already if you don't have control over your own money system, in some sense, you're less than a fully sovereign government. And this trend could, could continue toward a more you know, federal Europe system. And, and, there's, and then there's all kinds of conspiracy things about, you know, is this just another step in the financial industry's takeover of the planet? Uh, and there's definitely something to those uh, ideas. But because the system as a whole is unsustainable, I don't think any of those scenarios can play out for that long. Uh, any scenario in which you're going to maintain the position of the creditor class forever is going to bump up against reality very quickly. What would you say to people that are coming from the perspective that they've worked hard and stayed out of debt? Is it unfair to ask for debt forgiveness? Yeah, that's another thing um, that requires some finesse. There, and there's ways to get around it. David Graeber, who, who wrote this fabulous book, Debt, The First 5,000 Years, he says something like, you know, if I get mugged at gunpoint, does that mean that I think everybody else should get mugged too? You know, if someone gets mugged and society wants to give them restitution in some way, is that unfair because the people who didn't get mugged aren't getting restitution? And in a way, people have been mugged by the financial industry. It's not a fair playing field. So when people say, oh, you know, I've been responsible, I've paid off my debts and so forth. Is that really because you're a more responsible person than the people who are in debt? Is that really it? Actually, if you look at the main cause of bankruptcy, the number one leading reason of bankruptcy, it's catastrophic medical expenses. I'm not saying that everybody who's in debt is the hapless victim of circumstances, but there is a lot more of that than those who are sitting pretty would like to think. And I find that we have a lot less control over the vicissitudes of life than people think. You know, when, when, you're, when things are going well, you like to give yourself credit for it. Nonetheless, I think that you could structure a jubilee in a way that gives something to everybody. Stephen Keen proposed that there be some kind of bailout of mortgage holders, people who are underwater with their mortgage, but that other people would get the money too. Everyone would get the money and only if you were in debt, you know, you had to use it to pay off debts first and foremost. But if you didn't have any debts, you could just keep the money. And so that's one idea. I mean, another idea is to simply have the Federal Reserve or the central bank monetize debts, purchase the debts from the banks or whoever holds the the debts, the student loan debts, for example, the Federal Reserve could buy all student loan debt in America and reduce the interest rate to zero so that it's no longer such a huge burden. And so that's kind of a partial debt forgiveness that we could do. And there's lots of other ideas too. But I think that in one form or another, we're going to have to start playing with, with a jubilee. But we live in more complicated times than before. You know, it's not so simple as just decreeing all debts null and void. That would cause a lot of dislocation. But that's Ultimately, where we want to go is toward a society where you can't gain an unfair advantage. You can't get rich merely by owning, whether it's, it's owning money or owning land or owning anything else. But you have to put it to a socially productive use in order to get rich. And today, it's not like that. When you have money and, and a lot of it, you can invest in all of these risky, high-yield investment in instruments that if they go bad, you know that they'll get bailed out. So you can get richer and richer merely by having a lot of money to begin with. And that means that unless the economy is growing even faster than those high yields, 
you're getting richer in, in proportion to everybody else too. And that means everybody else must be getting poorer. And that has to stop. So what would be the first steps to this debt forgiveness? If we decided that this is the program our country wanted to go down, what would be the first steps? Would we need a change in government? Would we need a change in leadership? I mean, do we need people to take more financial responsibility for themselves? Maybe the Occupy movement makes it a major demand that you know the first yeah. focus should be debt forgiveness. Well, um, on a political level, I think that we need, yes, new leadership and also the existing leadership to understand the true dimensions of the problem and therefore to entertain solutions that are completely off the radar screen today. And that'll only happen when things get much, much worse. That'll only happen in the face of a crisis in which the existing tools in their toolbox are ineffective. And as for you know specific policies, how to do this, I mean, I mentioned one, you know, the central bank buying, say, student loans or underwater mortgages and reducing the interest rate to zero or even to negative. That's one way to do it. But yeah, so I think like the Occupy movement, just to keep that in the conversation, debt forgiveness, debt jubilee, uh, to keep that in the conversation and to keep putting attention on the unfairness of the debt burdens and the impossibility of the debt burdens that people are under. I think that's really important because that helps change the political climate. On a personal level, I think we can also align ourselves with debt forgiveness by not caring, not holding on to our sense of entitlement, our, um, our sense of superiority, our sense that the world owes me one, to you know, let go of what we think people owe us. The economic crisis has a spiritual dimension too. That must be really hard for some people who you know who have had in their minds that they they are their own king in their own kingdom and they've saved up their own money and you know to give to give all this debt forgiveness to people who have not, that would be really hard for some people. Yeah. I mean, I was speaking more in terms of psychological debts, resentment, you know, so-and-so owes me one. But it applies to that too. It applies to the ambition to live off the interest, to own so much that all you have to do is control the money and you'll be, you'll be rich forever. And that's not to say that people after a lifetime of productivity shouldn't be supported and honored in their old age. I think we need to have ways to do that. But that shouldn't be that hard. We have a tremendous amount of surplus labor in our society already. That's kind of the silver lining behind the unemployment rate. There's so many people wanting to do meaningful work and so much meaningful work that needs to be done, but money isn't connecting the supply and the need. And a lot of the people who are employed are doing work that doesn't really benefit society either. You know, the corrections, the armaments. I mean, there's so many sectors of human activity that don't contribute very much to well-being. Uh, so I think that we are going to work less. Uh, this is part of a whole whole chapter I have in the book about degrowth economics. People who are, who've retired or who are no longer productive in the normal economic sense need to be supported. That shouldn't be contingent, I don't think, on having amassed a lot of financial wealth. You mentioned you don't want to start any long-term plans because there's all this uncertainty in the world. There's you know so many potentials for conflict around the world, and there's so many potentials for financial problems and and citizen uprisings and things. I have kind of the same feeling. You know, it's kind of like there's this block. You know, out out in the long term, that it's like I don't know. Even though I make plans, it's like I feel that they're not as certain as maybe they used to yeah. be. Given that there's this uncertainty, do you have any advice to people who are maybe feeling that same thing? that same kind of 
uh, you know, uncertainty around long-term planning. Yeah, it's not that I've I've just I've you know surmised that there's going to be a lot of dislocation and therefore decided not to make plans. It's just that something seems to be stopping me from making plans, from making long-term plans. I mean, I've got stuff on my calendar. You know, I'm going to be speaking and going to be out in Vancouver soon and other places. But we should prepare ourselves to respond to unexpected opportunities. And you know, events can can very easily take on a life of their own. The Occupy movement's a good example. Two months before it began, no one had any idea. The people who got deeply involved in it, none of them had any idea that it was even going to happen. But they were in a place where they were ready for something to happen. They didn't know what. And I think that that's a good place to be right now still, ready for something to happen. And uh, right now it's winter. It's a good time to kind of hibernate and to develop inside the, inside the cocoon so that we're ready to burst forth when circumstances are ripe. Uh, so that's, that's my winter, my winter thought. To be okay with a little inaction right now, but to develop inside, to, to clarify your values, you know, to uh, receive visions of what's possible, to be inspired, to accept the reminders that come in about how beautiful the world can be and what human life is supposed to be and what's possible. So that when the time to act comes, we have the guidance of those insights and the encouragement of those reminders so that we can act in a powerful way. So that was Charles Eisenstein. He is always inspiring, always a message of hope. His ideas on debt jubilee were very interesting, taking all the debts that people have, all the disparities that have happened in our debt-driven society and making them no longer so prevalent is something that's quite a departure from what our normal ways of thinking are, aren't they, Justin? What, what were your impressions on uh, what Charles had to say? So much of our reality is built around a particular monetary paradigm. And it's a way of thinking about money as a way of thinking about society that we've been ingrained with since we were born and our parents have had since they were born into this world. And we have a certain notion of the work that we do and the rewards that we get for that work and then an expectation of how things move forward. And what Charles was talking about is that there's so many people in our world who want to play the economic game and accumulate money and then live off of the interest. And I'm here in Vancouver, and that's exactly a, a city that still lives wholly in that mindset more than perhaps anywhere else because there's a massive housing bubble here 
and everyone wants to sit on their house that they bought 30 or 40 years ago and then live off of the interest on that housing value increase where it's gone from, I've heard some people say $100,000 that they've bought in back in the early 60s to now a million, a million and a half or even $2 million on their house. So, I mean, you're talking this massive explosion of wealth and yeah, I can see why they like it because it makes life so easy. You don't have to do anything else. You can just hang out, enjoy the view and then live off of that equity, right? And so it it is so attractive to be able to do that, but there's only a very small number of people who really truly get to benefit from it and it's leading to these massive inequities in society. One of my friend's brothers just got back from Mexico. He's been living in the, the mountains of Mexico where you can live on about $3,000 to $4,000 for a whole year. He doesn't have electricity and this is coming from a you know westernized society where he's been working every day trying to get money so he could live but he just moved to Mexico and he says that he doesn't own a timepiece. He doesn't really have any knowledge about when he wakes up or goes to bed. He just exists. He lives. And when people ask him what he does every day, he just says he, he's living. And how do you explain to somebody what living is? So that's coming from a perspective of make money that defines me, make money that tells me who I am, that gives me self-worth, that helps the world, to another perspective which is just being happy with your everyday existence. And this is a concept that people in the West are very uncomfortable with. They need the stimulation of, of entertainment constantly. They, they need to be safe in the knowledge that their car is going to be full of gas and they're going to be able to drive anywhere in the, in the blink of an eye. But these are not really necessary to life in general. I mean, you don't really need all the things that Americans use every day. You don't need electricity every day to be happy and to live on $4,000 to $3,000 a year and just be satisfied with that is an incredible concept that a lot of people are going to have to get used to very quickly in this country because of the declining amounts of resources available to us and the rising resources needs of the rest of the world. And this is a very, very scary concept for people. It's a very large mind shift to go from guarding your wealth to just being happy, not having anything. And I was just reading recently about a study of happiness in society. And there's a poll done by some researchers and they looked at the happiness on a relative scale of seven. And so they took several dozen members of the Forbes 400 in the United States and they polled them and they had an average quote unquote happiness score of 5.8 out of seven. And then they applied the same testing standard to the Maasai people who are an East African nomadic peoples, and they scored a 5.7 out of 7. And yeah, it's wild what, what expectations can do to happiness, you know? Yeah, when you don't have any expectations for happiness, you can just be so happy with so little. Yeah, and these people have no electricity, you know, they, they don't have any of the modern things that we enjoy, and there they are, almost as happy on this particular scale, and of course, there's some subjectivity, you know, given testing and things. But essentially, they're almost as satisfied, almost as happy as the wealthiest 1%, the 0.01% of the United States. That's pretty incredible. It is pretty incredible. Yeah. And so I really liked what Charles had to say about, you know, at winter, we're more introspective. We take some time to be ready for action because we know action's coming. 
and you know it's all about trying to put yourself in the best position so that as things happen the kind of things that we've been talking about on the show you're ready to step up you're ready to do what you need to do as Manfred Max Neef said be coherent with yourself and know what you need to do when the time comes and there's no one answer to that for anybody and that can be kind of frustrating because we're so used to prescriptive actions but it's all about looking inside yourself and being ready for whatever comes and that's what Charles is saying that we need to do at this time and I think he's spot on with that. So Seth, uh, what do you see coming up in 2012? Do you want to make any predictions about what's going to happen this year? Well, I know for sure that I'm going to be finishing my Skyrim video game and probably going to be finishing the Game of Thrones series that I've been starting. I'm on the book three, almost through. And you know it's been it's been a tough road, but I'm, I'm imagining to get through it. What about you, Justin? Are you gonna have any predictions? Well, I'm going to finish up my master's degree here at University of British Columbia and have some big things coming next. And then also I'm gonna grow a really nice garden in the patch we've got in our backyard. Maybe even think about getting rabbits or chickens. So that's wow. in the pipeline. Nice. Also fermenting a lot growing a lot of cabbage and been making some sauerkraut recently like we talked about with Sander Katz in episode 23 of the Extra Environmentalist. It's been great. Lots of fermenting and lots of growing here in the future. I do have a fermented jar of sauerkraut in my fridge right now that I need to start eating. My mom just gave it to me after she listened to the episode and she was like, hey Seth, I have this jar of sauerkraut. Do you want it? And I was like, yes I do. She heard the interview and she made some? She did, yeah. She liked the interview so much that she went out into her garden, harvested her cabbage and made some sauerkraut. So now I have the fruits of her labor in my fridge. It's almost like a donation to the podcast. And we have had some really great donations recently, haven't we, Justin? Yeah. Thanks so much to everyone who's gone onto our website at www.extraenvironmentalist.com and has clicked the donate link. We really do not stress the donations on this show because it's something that people have been doing out of the gratitude out of their own hearts. It's something that people have been doing because maybe our show has resonated with them. And so we really appreciate it. But please don't feel obligated to donate. It's not something that you have to do because you're listening to the show. But, you know, if you're already throwing money at media every month, you know, if you think if I'm going to go and subscribe to cable television or something and throw down 80, 100 bucks a month to do that, why not uh, chip a little bit uh, towards independent media? And so we appreciate the people who do that. We've been really blown away. Every time we open up our inboxes to, to see these donations sitting there, I, I, I always email Justin. And I'm like, wow. Can you believe it? Another person thinks our show is so good that they'll send us their hard-earned money, and it just blows me away. Since our last episode, we have quite a few really amazing donations from Alex in Sinking Spring, Pennsylvania. Thanks, Alex. We had a donation from Darren in Edmonton, Alberta. So thanks so much, Darren. We received a donation from Ron in Colorado. We also received a donation from Claudia from Mexico City, and... Congratulations to Claudia for being the, f the first person from Mexico to donate from your whole country. It's a big honor for you, and we are extremely grateful. Yeah, thanks so much for being patrons of our podcast. But most of all, thanks for listening and taking your precious time and devoting it to listening to these important ideas and to listening to Seth and I just go off on our crazy riffs. And even though 2011 was a really big year at The Extra Environmentalist, I know that 2012 is going to be an even bigger year. With our next episode, we've got Morris Berman talking about his book, Why America Failed. 
I've been editing some of it already and it's been sending chills through me, some of the stuff he's been saying about technology and society and the way that certain aspects of American culture appeal to the juvenile within us all. So that's going to be coming up here in the next few weeks. And we've got so many listener emails and comments and things that we'll pull into that episode. Thanks also for following us on Facebook and on Twitter. If you haven't liked us already, go on Facebook and click the like button. Follow us on Twitter where we send out all sorts of interesting messages about things that are happening in our world. Send this podcast to a friend. If you're in Vancouver, you can listen to us on the radio there. Thanks to everyone who's left a voicemail with us throughout 2011. We're looking forward to more exciting voicemails in 2012. And if you want to call in and tell us a bit of a story about where you're at in the world, feel free to do so at our voicemail number at plus one nine one nine seven oh one XTRA. That's nine one nine seven oh one nine eight seven two. Or you can go into our website and we now have a call us on Skype button. So you can call that and leave us a voicemail through our Skype. So if you're outside North America and you don't want to call a North American number, then you can do it through Skype. And we really appreciate the voicemails. And so everyone who donated, Claudia, Ron, Darren, and Alex, they all got the bonus content for this month, which a lot of people have really enjoyed and liked. And so uh, thanks again for donating, everybody, and hope you're enjoying all that great bonus content from the Extra Environmentalists. Thanks again, everybody. Spread the word, spread the podcasts. Spread your arms and have a, a wingspan big enough to take in all those people as all the craziness of 2012 unfolds ahead of us. Aren't you excited to be living? It's an exciting time to be alive. It's not an exciting time if you had particular expectations about the world. And so it's exciting if you can let those expectations go and really unfold into the future, prepare for anything, focus on your own personal development and the development of those around you, and really just let it loose and and let it fly here in this new year. It's going to be exciting. It is. So get out there, buy some ginger root, and stay hydrated. The democracy we have today, institutional, obviously cannot cope with these problems. This is our task today. We shouldn't terrorize now protesters, give us a precise plan or whatever. Since, nonetheless, we are approaching a situation where things will have to be decided. I think it is nonetheless important that we start to shift focus from the purely, let me call it, negative gesture, we reject this debt, to at least try to play with, imagine, alternate modes of organizing production and so on and so on. It's easy to mock these technocrats. But, you know, it's important not just to say, okay, they mask a certain politics and so on and so on, But let's imagine that our best or worst fears will happen in Greece. There will be some kind of a half collapse of the state. I think it's so important that we at least start to think about it. I'm saying this not to say, "Ah, ah, 
Comrade Stalin will be back, but precisely how to prevent Stalin to come back? How to? Without this, we will be eternally condemned just to this negative moralistic protest. We want justice. Fuck you. What kind of justice? How? Let's at least start dreaming about it. The time is here. Because that's for me the tragedy. If you only protest, what other thing you can get but a technocratic government? I mean, we protest. And what then? It's, I wouldn't even blame just those in power. We have to start thinking at all levels and be very critical here. Time on the Extra Environmentalist. What they do is they live inside the narrative, which means that you can never correct the narrative. That's why you have tent cities flying the American flag. It's not that the people in the tent cities are saying, oh, there's something wrong entirely in its conception with the American dream. No, no, it's I didn't get my share of the American dream, and that's what I want now. One day when Johnny grows up and turns 30, I'm going to send him to get the GED of his dreams. Because I immigrated here illegally, I cannot have a real bank account, but I still need checks. Being a drug lord comes with lots of complications. Where to put the bodies? Where to put the money? Bank of Mattress, I know it's always got my back. At the First National Bank of Mattress, we offered you the utmost security for your financial goals. And all the money that you've saved, you can just stuff it away in a place where you know it's safe. You don't have to worry about any more tellers sleeping on the job because you'll be sleeping on the money you earned in your job. Instead of now, you'll receive two security pillows that you can stash with your weaponry, drugs, or cash. Security pillows are not as secure as mattresses, but they offer a portable solution to bank storage. It's almost like you can bring your bank with you anywhere that you sleep. Uncertain times, worried about a run on the banks, First National Bank of Mattress has everything that you're looking for in a place where you can stash your cash. Signing up for your mattress bank account is easy. Simply select the size of mattress that you wish to have in your home, and Bank of Mattress will deliver it in no time at all. Place valuables inside the easily sealable mattress vault and lock with our specially digitized locks that will only open upon your voice print and thumb signature. Bank of Mattress offers a unique security combination that you can actually feel your money as you sleep. No longer will you have sleepless nights wondering if your money is disappearing from your bank account, because now you'll be able to feel it against your back. 
desk or side. Bank of Mattresses' unique online bill pay system. Never again will you have to write a check. Simply unzip the mattress, remove the cash, place it in an envelope, and send the bill where it needs to go. You don't have to worry about writing that flimsy check like you lost the mail. And to show our commitment to the community, the First National Bank of Mattress is sponsoring this year's first annual mattress bank run, a marathon to get people running through the streets centered around the idea of banking. That's how much we care about your community. If you're worried about living off of your interest, now you can make sure that that interest is in your back, supporting you while you sleep. Wealth comes in many different forms, so we now offer many different forms to support your back. Choose from the gold standard, a firm resting place, or a softer one with the cash-only deposit system. If you're considering going with the First National Bank of Mattress, we know it's a big decision. That's why we want you to sleep on it. The First National Bank of Mattress. In uncertain times, we've got your back.